the most influential woman graphic designer on the planet is what Paula Cher has been called, although, as I said earlier, I'm not sure she needs the gender qualifier. She's been a principal in the New York office of international design consultancy Pentagram since 1991, when she was the only woman among 15 men. She has designed graphics and packaging and publications for clients ranging from the Public Theatre in New York, the Museum of Modern Art, to Citibank and Tiffany's. There is an episode on Paula Cher in the Netflix series Abstract, The Art of Design. She is coming here next month for the AGI Open, a two-day festival hosted by the Alliance Graphique Internationale in Auckland. And she joins me now. Hello. Hello. Gosh, I've just been reading about the exhibition of your work, the last five decades of your work at the Design Centre in Munich. That must have been a fabulous enterprise. Oh, it was wonderful. Um, they were terrific to work with, and uh, the quality of reproduction and build-out of the exhibit was so much better than what I've had in New York or really anywhere in the world. I never saw anything quite like that. It was wonderful. People can see some of that on our webpage, along with parts of your other work, which we will talk about. It's odd, actually. I was just talking to an expert in octopuses, and he, <laughs> and he said that the traits of the octopus, which make us believe it is very intelligent, are persistence, flexibility, and curiosity. And all of those, I think, would apply to you in large measure, without any false modesty, would you not say? Some of them. <laughs> I'm not all of them. I don't, I, I'm not sure. Um, but um, quite a bit. I never thought of myself as an octopus, but maybe I should start thinking of myself that way. When did you realize, I'm not sure octopuses can type, um, when did you realize that type in the generic sense could express so much? It's very interesting um, how the world moved and how people understand things. If you take advertising, which we were talking about before, um, it was very important at one point to have taglines, that taglines meant everything. And that's how people understood a specific product. Like Nike's just do it as an obvious example, but there are many other examples. And uh, usually there were uh, television advertisements in the States that would be uh, things that would make you feel like a product would make you successful or beautiful or or capable, and it would be reflected in um, the language of the tagline. And what happened, um, I think, in the past 50 years over a period of time and accelerated by the computer is that people didn't necessarily need a tagline to understand the essence of a product, they could begin to recognize it in the form of a logo. 
and it would have to do with its modernity or a specific form, they would recognize it after a period of time without even reading it. And um, that I know that typography has an abundance of different ways it can express itself, and more so now because so many designers are actually drawing their own fonts, which didn't happen until quite recently, and we've all been able to program them and make them behave the way we want to behave. So you have this plethora of visual languages about, and it's really quite exciting. When you say that you actually, in the end, don't need the words, you just need the logo, Nike is a perfect example of that, right? For a long time... They had the Nike well, and the swoosh. In the end, you just need the swoosh. That's right. Is that one That's of the right. most effective logos you can think of? Well, it's interesting because in the abstract, it actually isn't all that interesting. I mean, when you look at it just purely as form, but in terms of the messaging and the television commercials and the graphics that were um, always cutting edge and sport, it the meaning of it, it is imbued with so much meaning that you can't help but look at that logo and think of sport. What do you make of the, I mean, I don't know whether it's been officially changed, but there's certainly an outcry about it. We're accustomed to the I Love New York logo, which was designed back in the (laughs) 1970s. And this year, the partnership for New York City introduced We Love NYC, We Heart NYC, with a different font. You hate that. <laughs> well, here's the here's the irony of it. You know, it isn't sometimes what you do uh, professionally just really doesn't do the job. In the case, in the case of iHeart New York, most people don't understand that the logo was done for New York State. It was part of a, a ad campaign that had a song with it that sang, I love New York. And it was showing pictures of mountains and valleys and parklands. And nobody associates that with the logo because nobody ever saw that in connection to the logo, except for the six months that that ad campaign ran, where people saw it was on the coffee cup and they saw it in on T-shirts and they saw it in airports And the airport they saw it in the most was in New York City. And it became the logo of New York City. Even though it wasn't initially designed for that, the people of New York took that logo as their own. And then all of a sudden, there's a new mayor, and the mayor suddenly thinks, oh, we don't have a logo for New York City because that was designed for New York State. So he makes this thing that's sort sort of a bad imitation of the logo with an emoji heart. And it's a joke. And anybody who's a real New Yorker knows it's a joke. And anybody who's outside of New York has to know it's a joke, too, because why did you why could you possibly need that? But it's also very strange when you see things out of context, like if you go to um, the uh, New York state government website, they actually have the I Heart New York logo that Milton Glaser designed up on the corner. Um, but then they have a big picture of uh, City Hall in Albany, and it just looks like City Hall anywhere. And you don't know why that's sitting there with the New York logo, because it doesn't belong next to the building. It belongs on the coffee cup. Ah. So if the mayor had come to you and said, look, we want to update this, would you have said, do not do it? Or would you have Absolutely. come up with it? Don't touch it. Absolutely. Don't touch it. Some things you don't mess with. The public... When it, when it, ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, but I mean, the the public theatre, which is a a major interest of yours, 
uh, the what you've designed for the public theatre is part of this big exhibition in Inouye of Samlong, and you've been with it for years and years. You have changed the... You've rebranded it three times, right? Or changed right. the typography of the logo of it three times. Why was that necessary? Um, it really uh, had to do with um, the, the notion of how people were understanding the public. When I first started designing it, and I really didn't change the logo very much, I would say it was the position was changed and ultimately we lost theater and we just brand it as the public. We don't put theater on it anymore. You know, oh, because really? everybody knows that's part of the, you know, that's, that was part of it because when you say you, no one says the public theater that much, if they talk about it colloquially, they say the public. Oh, that's satisfactory knows. for you then, isn't it? I mean, that's the ultimate aim that's of the branding. That's the, that's the point. Yeah. Is to get everybody, everybody to understand it. The, there is a visual language to the theater and, um, what I ended up having to do uh, for them was to be able to broaden it. Initially, we were doing um, posters for individual plays. And the problem with that was that the public theater is a small institution and not these plays aren't going to Broadway, except for very few of them. And uh, we would make these posters and no one would see them. And they, unless you came to the public theater, you didn't see the graphic and you didn't see what was going on there. And then we began to th rethink it, and it had to do with the change in the director. First, it was George Wolfe, and he was very concerned about the individual plays. And when Oscar Eustace became director of the theater, he was interested in the totality of programming. And knowing that it was very difficult for the public theater to advertise because they didn't have the kind of dollars they're not for profit theater. What I had to do was be able to make a language for them where it could change seasonally and each season, every show would look like they were connected to each other. So you understood this thing as an offer and what was terrific about it. And I didn't really even know it would work is the membership went up. Because people were before buying individual plays, and if they didn't know anything about it, they went by the play. But when they saw this connected spirit of the theater that they could recognize on site, and then it would change the next season, but still be within a visual vocabulary, people started becoming members. And that's really what made the theater grow. When you talk about a visual, I'm just looking at your design for Tiffany & Co. The name against a aqua background, I suppose. Very plain, very right. classical, I suppose. But what makes me think it's classical? Why do I get a meaning? Why do I get a feeling from the way those words are written? Well, it's, it's elegant typography. It's a beautiful serif font. But there's something else that, is is uh, you should know that when I when they hired me to design it, they had um, shiny paper, which they don't anymore, and they the logo, which was not dissimilar, it was a little bit heavier, it was very big on the box, and that the inside of the box 
didn't have the shiny paper. The paper was glued and it was just a, a plain white inside of the box. So that the whole Tiffany experience had to change because it had to look exclusive and beautiful. So we found uh, the signature blue for them that is one dye lot and it's only printed in two places in the world. So it looks consistent. And the inside of the boxes are dyed. So they're all blue. And the uh, type was made much, much smaller on the box because the thing is that when you're that elegant and theoretically expensive, you don't shout. And that, that you, you understand that that has to be the language of something that's supposed to be very exquisite jewelry. Yeah, it's interesting. You do not shout. So was it difficult to persuade them that they didn't need the, the shiny bits? Well, they knew there was something wrong with it. They knew, they knew, and but the um, internally at the point I was working with them, they didn't have a, a broad marketing department. Um, the people who did the, worked on the packaging were not marketing people. They were people who were uh, more involved in merchandising and in um, production. So they didn't even understand what was even worse was the shopping bag. The shopping bag had a big word, Tiffany, plastered across of it, across it, and the, the shiny, terrible material and a big, fat rope handle that just looked very tacky. How can that be? You know, how can you be this exclusive jewelry company and have a bag like that? So they they got it. They saw that they they really weren't thinking about it that way. What um, and, moron uh, designed that in the first place? <laughs> well, you know, it, sometimes, uh, particularly in various retail in, industries, and only recently, I would say by recently, I mean maybe in the past 35, 40 years, has design impacted these kinds of stores. They're jewelry stores that um, you would be surprised at what their uh, uh, graphics and packaging look like, you know, that they, they are concerned about the jewelry, but they don't think about marketing in a sophisticated way. Now, you know, I think the company that changed all of that for everybody initially was really Gucci um, when they, they began to put their logos on everything and make the GG belt and showing how important the brand was. I mean, originally the upscale stores were concerned about the product, you know, that that's, that's where they, that's where they, they spent their money and that's, that's what they were creating for the public. Um, but they could lose to, to somebody who did bet, do it, did it better. I mean, Tiffany is not the highest end jeweler in in the world but they certainly feel that way well thanks to audrey hepburn really you can't beat that can you no you can't that's the best branding in the world <laughs> i was reading an article about your rebranding when city corp and travelers group merged to create city group and it was along the lines that you might do things really quickly um but it's necessary for your clients to see you sweating hours for you to earn your money. It's called the labor perception bias. Clients, <laughs> driven by a desire to perceive value for their investment, expect a laborious creative process. Do you tend to try to make them think that you've sweated hours? 
Well, I don't really have any choice. You know, like they'll always they'll always make sure they get the hours, even if I design it in the first five minutes. You know, I mean, because, you know, I spend five minutes sometimes designing something and a year proving it. Um, uh, so it's the that, it's the convincing that takes the time. Oh, design is such a one would be such a wonderful thing without persuading people to use it. The persuading them to use it is the hard part. Uh, persuading somebody to appear differently or or do something that sort of shakes things up a bit and particularly making the investment where I'm empathetic to them. I mean, if it's a clothing store and you change, you know, their packaging and their logo, they have to change every label of all the clothing. I mean, it's a massive operation. Um, so it is, a, it's not without risk and, and these things take time. And sometimes uh, I find I'm an instinctive designer and I'm, I'm very good at the beginning and, and I need to really sort of get myself to focus on the details because it's all in the details in the end when you're doing, you know, any kind of retail branding, um, you know, like the choices of the paper and the way something appears in the store and, and how uh, the identity manifests itself in a teeny weeny spot in a very big spot. And these things require a lot of time and patience and, and work. But the actual thinking about what they should be is something that's much more impulsive you know, you're essentially listening to their history, who they think their customer is, uh, where they think they would like to be, who they like, who they don't like, etc. And you're you're coming to a conclusion to say, well, they really need something that feels like thus and such. And I, I come to that fairly quickly by absorbing their information, but the actual uh, making of the thing over over the period of year or sometimes two years that it takes is is often quite tedious and boring. Yeah, doesn't that drive you mad? Well, fortunately, I have a nice big staff. <laughs> they can do a lot of it. Once we establish it, we sort of split it up and it gets moved around. But the client meetings do do can be quite tedious. But with your reputation, why why can't you just say, look? This is what's going to work. Trust me. Well, that doesn't quite work because they want proof. Um, but how are they going their... to get proof? Where does proof come from in the using? Uh, I can't prove that it's going to work, but I can educate them uh, about what tends to work and who's done it. So by example and, you know, by demonstrating uh, how something can be better, uh, then that's when I have a success. Um, sometimes, sometimes I don't, I don't persuade. Uh, mostly, my, in most of the jobs, I, I have to say that it, either, either they're doing it or they're, they've already left. So, so it's, I, it's rare that they don't begin to take the advice once they've, they've sort of drunk the Kool-Aid, I guess. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how far your influence or insight goes, but you said um, you're dealing with who they think the customer is. Do they ever think that their customer is... Do they ever get that wrong? Do they ever believe that their customer is not who their customer is or should be? Uh, it depends upon the business. I mean, the the um, uh, I think some people um, 
underestimate their 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 capabilities in terms of broadening audiences and other people uh probably have set up some kind of pattern by which they can't really expand their audiences um i was working for a fashion company which i think did just that and i i, I don't want to go into the name of it but it had a very specific type of audience it made a very specific type of clothing and I think they they would like to broaden but the perception of the place is such that I don't even know if it's possible. So you're working on that? Well, I don't think they I don't think what they do is bad. I just think that that it is specific. It is specific to a specific type of customer. Mm. And that that if they change it I don't know for a fact that they would gain a new customer, but they might lose the old one. One of the um, early industries that you worked in was the record industry, and you worked on record covers. Back in the day when there were LPs in the first incarnation of them and covers mattered, and you would studied the cover while you were studying the music. Very, very evocative. You must regret the loss of that. You know, it's funny. I, I loved I loved doing it. I, I, was a, I made about 150 covers a year for uh, eight years. I was the East Coast art director of CBS Records. And, you know, it was a warehouse. And, and we, there were so many albums that came out. And, and I used to work with recording artists. And some of the covers were really terrific. And some of the covers were terrible. Um, and when I left, uh, I was really happy to leave because I had done this work over and over again. Everything was square everything uh, was flat and I thought well I'd like to make a book or I'd like to do something that was dimensional I became a three-dimensional designer uh, when I joined Pentagram and um, I I look back at it as this really incredible magical time and there are things about the work that stayed like there are my uh, teams who are are much, much younger than me, uh, actually buy my old albums and use record stores and they collect them and they're, they're around and they have this other life. And um, there's a, a series of albums I did for a jazz musician called Bob James. And he was the most sampled artist in these crazy sort of very um, sweet man who, who was not, what you would assume a rock star would be like. He wasn't a rock star. He was a jazz musician and, and he became the most um, sampled hip hop person. So he, he had a Renaissance and we made a series of album covers for him that were all big objects blown out of scale. And um, they were based on how many albums he had so that we would do the fifth one was a nickel and there was uh, one that was called H, which was the, um, uh, I think it was the eighth letter, the sixth letter of the alphabet. Uh, Touchdown was the sixth, the sixth album. They, they were based on numbers, but nobody knew that and nobody cared about it. And I find that the, the hip hoppers all refer to the albums as the hot dog or the nickel or the, the, uh. the football or whatever was on it as the object and nobody cared what the album was called. <laughs> so it was sort of funny what stays and what doesn't and, and what they think about that now, you know, that when you see, when you see somebody talking about work that you did a long time ago 
and what that impression gave somebody, what that work did to somebody and how they remember it. You mentioned that some of them you were proud of, of course, and some of them were terrible. And the Netflix series that I mentioned, um, Abstract, The Art of Design, the episode in which you feature talked about, I think it was Boston, a design that you made, <laughs> right, a design right you made for a Boston album, which was, you know, horrific. You are the first to say this is horrific. First of all, how did it come that you made an album cover that you thought was horrific? And B, how do you think things become fabulous in their terribleness over time? Well, this is really interesting to me. I mean, I don't even hate the Boston cover as much as I did. I had a I had a friend uh, at the time I um, designed it who said, you know, when you die, it's going to say on your tombstone that you designed the Boston cover. And I thought, oh, God, may I never die. It was... Um, it was a problem with the with the band. We were working. I was working with a, a project manager, a guy named Jim Charney, who I, I really liked. We worked very well together. And Tom Scholes, who was the head of Boston, worked for Polaroid, and they wanted something scientific on the cover. Uh, and we had sort of gone through a, a bunch of ideas that had to do, you know, with electric guitars or or something where something that was musical became scientific but he wanted something that had to do with space and he he wanted uh you know like an outer space cover which i didn't have any feeling for um and then we did one where we had um a, a pile of uh spaceships invading the earth and people were running and they were just horrified. They, and they said, no, 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 the spaceships should be saving people. <laughs> of course, <laughs> but You can't should. make stuff up, by the way. This is like a typical music business conversation. <laughs> so so uh, we had this idea that maybe the earth would be exploding and all these cities would be leaving the earth. And so there would be Paris and, 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 and that was what was on the cover. There were like little spaceships and the biggest spaceship in front said Boston. So they made me take the names. The company made me take the names of the cities off of all the spaceships because people, they were afraid that people would think that the covers was Boston, Paris, Rome. And, you know, there was no way you could think that because these, if you look at the cover, the spaceships are so little. But that was sort of the crazy stuff of being in the music business at that time. I mean, nobody cared what anything ma- meant. Um, it was there were there was no strategy. There was no real planning. We just sort of made things. It's possible that drugs were involved, Paula. What? It's it's possible that drugs were involved. <laughs> well, they were certainly about. I don't know if they they were directly involved, but they were permeating the uh, environment. But what would happen is that you would you would make these things with almost no logic attached to them, and they'd be perfectly fine. They really would. Some of them were just terrific, uh, and mostly they were they were allowed to be accidental because there was so much money to make these things, and. Um, it was this golden period of the music industry. Your father was a pioneer in measuring. Uh, he, he invented he invented a measuring device which fixed 
the distortion created by the curvation of the Earth on maps. And then he worked for the US Geological Survey, where he made government maps. And here you are today creating, painting these incredibly detailed maps, some of which people can see on our webpage and which are on display in Munich at the moment. Can you tell me about those maps, please? Your maps. Well, it. I didn't even know when I started painting them that they had to be connected to my father. But I, I am obsessed with information, and um, also useless information. Like I, I remember I would be working on. Uh, a magazine, and there'd be a terrific article written by somebody, but there wouldn't be enough space for it. So they'd sort of lop out a pile of paragraphs, and that would be the article. And I always thought that um, when the Times said all the news that's fit to print, they really were lying. It was all the news that fits. You know, sort of what fits on a page is what gets made. And I began to create sort of fractured illustrations of my own information. And they, they, there was a, a self-portrait I did where I had my whole life written on my face. Um, and these things become became very dense. And then somewhere along the way, I painted a map with it. And the map was really opinionated information that fit into the space of the map. And some of these things had roads in them and some of them had, uh, you know, boundaries of states and where the capitals were, et cetera. And I found that people really started reading them. Uh, there was an enormous map I did of the United States that hung for about six months at the Cooper Hewitt. And I saw two people standing in front of it pointing to a route they took across the country. Except for the route was in the wrong place. It was the wrong route number. You know, that way there isn't there you can't navigate by the maps, but they're sort of right. And people and very very similarly to the way they recognize logos, recognize information. I mean, these will be sought after pieces of art now, correct? Well, I I have a I have two uh, lives. I have a um a design practice and a painting life. Um, and, uh, you know, I do things, uh, in the painting life, I'm not terribly organized about it. I had, uh, two galleries and one of them, the space closed. So I don't have my big painting gallery anymore, but I do have my printing gallery where sometimes I show paintings, but I found recently most of the work is commissions. Uh, I was commissioned to paint this Porsche, which is actually in the show. I don't know if you have pictures of it, but it was, covered with the map of the United States that wrapped around the entire Porsche that yes, I painted. We've got, during... a, we've got a picture of that Porsche. How did that happen? I Just somebody called me up, asked me to do it, and I did it. Uh, well, I've you got know, this Porsche. Longer than they could, but, they, but somebody, it was a German collector, and uh, the Porsche was originally going to be shipped from Germany, but they had to buy it in the United States because it was during COVID, and so the shipping industry had stopped. Um, and uh, I painted it in this house uh, in my husband's archive uh, for about a year and a half. And it's a beautiful Drink. thing. And what is it? Is the paint on the Porsche or is the Porsche wrapped in the painting? 
No, the the paint is on the Porsche. The poor, I had to paint all that car goes the, the the bottom of the car curves way under the car. I was on my back for about six months painting that. It was really painful. This is like um, Michelangelo. <laughs> well, Michelangelo, Michelangelo had help. Ha! <laughs> 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 Michelangelo ain't seen nothing yet. It's an extraordinary thing. And so does the person who owns the Porsche still own the Porsche? Yes. And does he and drive he, it? No. The, uh, the, uh, I think they just recently put the um, engine back in the car. Uh, but the Porsche is sitting in the Pinacotec in Samalong on the, in the exhibit for uh, till September, so we can't drive it right now because it's in the exhibit. How extraordinary. Somebody has texted me. We've got lots of texts about this interview. And somebody says, with regard to advertising and clients and the time it takes to approve an idea, you have to remember that there are countless people who are striving to justify their existence. There's a thing called the blue boat which is something you plant into the pitch that they will find and dislike, so it is removed and everyone is happy and paid. Do you have a similar thing to a blue boat? Uh, yeah. Uh, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but that's a pretty good description of it. Um, I, will, I, I do this usually in... Uh, an early presentation uh, when I'm trying to get somebody to make a decision. And it's really to do something that I know that is going to scare them a little bit so that they feel more comfortable when they see the thing that's right. And then they can get rid of that. Yes. That was, <laughs> that sounds very cynical. Well, <laughs> it isn't really because I don't show them anything. I wouldn't be as happy with if they made it. Right. You know, that, that like it isn't a bad thing. It's just something that I know will will sometimes sometimes they buy it and then it's great. But it's it's done because I want them to feel comfortable with their with their choice. So I want to make sure that they have one choice that makes them uncomfortable. Is there anything that you have been prepared to die in a ditch for and they've refused to accept and you've walked away? It doesn't usually happen like that. It's not that dramatic a stand. It's usually that the relationship has become tedious because I've been working very hard to try to persuade something to somebody to do something that isn't bad and that I think will be either good or or at least accept, acceptable and not embarrassing. And at that point in time, I walk away because if I can't if I can't make that happen, I don't want to, I don't want to be embarrassed. Nevertheless, very much like the octopus, persistent, flexible, and curious. Somebody else has texted to say the Bob James LP covers, which he spoke about earlier, are iconic. Respect, they say. Oh, that's nice. And I bet you have people coming out to you all the time saying, oh, my goodness, I have this, I love it, I've got it framed. You know, since abstract, people come up to me. But but I, before then, I, I was a designer for a good forty five years, and nobody said anything particularly nice to me. So I I say I think that's the power of television. Yeah, but also the 
the explanatory power because it's it's hard to know what design people, graphic design people, what they actually do. I think people know more than ever. Um, I, people seem to understand the profession. They they like the profession. I think what's happened recently is actually advertising agencies have tried to be, uh, you know, demonstrate that they can be graphic designers and, and hire designers to do work for them in, in ways where those those professions were very different before. So there's some blurring of it, but uh, people want design. They want their they want their work the things they make to have a spirit and a personality and to be recognizable and, and to suit whatever it is that the image they're trying to achieve. So when and, you go, when you go around a place, not necessarily New York, because you're probably quite dominant in New York, but elsewhere, do you get any physical pain from bad, bad signs or bad graphic design? Always. <laughs> Always, oh, so you you don't know how terrible it is to like you know go someplace and look at terrible letter spacing. It just is just it's something that's sort of like you know it's like fingers on a chalkboard. You know you, that's that's a curse. You do you see the flaws everywhere, and you see a lot of great stuff too. Yeah, I mean I can only compare that to my feeling about bad punctuation and misplaced apostrophes, which is really boring. But I just can't deal with it. Yeah, I totally empathize. I, I, I get that. When you know, when you know that something could be better and it isn't just because it's sloppy, it's very depressing. I do want to, I mean, bad design has more than repercussions that upset us. And I wanted to talk to you briefly about the Palm Beach election ballot card which is dealt with in the Netflix documentary. It's an example of how bad design has quite devastating outcomes. Could you talk to me about that, please? Uh, yes, this was an accident. Um, and the woman who designed the Palm Beach uh, ballot actually was a graphic designer, wasn't an amateur, and, and she thought she was making a, a good design decision that ended up being disastrous. And it was because they determined in this particular uh, county, oh, by the way, I should state, state for the listeners, this was the election between George Bush Jr. and Al Gore, which was totally decided in one state. And the election, this was a close election, not like our last election. This In this election, they were under 100 votes apart in one state. Al Gore was ahead in the rest of the in the rest of the election. But to gain the Electoral College, the famous U.S. Electoral College, you had to carry the state of Florida. So this is where they were battling it out. And they found in one district that uh, a ballot was designed on it was it was something called a butterfly ballot where there were two sides and two columns. Typically, the ballots are usually uh, a long uh, venture. You would go to the first part and it would be President George Bush, Al Gore, and you put an X next to one or the other. And then you'd go down to the vice president and you put an X next to one or the other. And that's how they're usually designed. But um, 
to do that in this particular county in Palm Beach County, which had a very big older population, they thought it would be better for the people if the type was bigger. So instead of having these long ballots, they made it wide and they had things, they had two columns side by side. So this was a close election. There was a very big turnout. There was a very long line. And the Palm Beach ballot was designed so that um, uh, George Bush was on the top of the first column and a, a candidate named Jack Buchanan was on the other side of the column and then staggered below that was Al Gore. So if you didn't look at the ballot carefully and didn't realize that you read had to read one down one full side to determine where your choices were and then go to the other side, what you would do naturally is you would either, if you're voting for George Bush, you'd hit the top. And if you're voting for Al Gore and you weren't looking, you'd hit Pat Buchanan. And that's how, that's how George Bush won that district, which is largely Jewish and largely democratic and largely old. And a big percentage of Jews voted for Pat Buchanan, who's an anti-Semite. So that was sort of an amazing thing to happen simply because of the layout of the ballot it through the election. And was the designer mortified? Did she accept uh, that it was a bad design? I never got to see her talk about it. I read that she was I, I, that she was horrified. You know, she I mean, this was she thought she thought she was doing a good thing for the community by making the type bigger. So and she was. She was. It's just that the thing about the thing about design and it, I find this difficult because there's part of it where you have to take into account human behavior particularly if you're doing something, doing a form or something that somebody is working with or you using or, you know, changing a name of something, you have to, you have to think about how other people think. And I could see people standing in that line, in that long line and saying, what's taking that person so long? Why are they taking so long? They don't know who they're voting for. Aren't they stupid? Why don't they just hurry up and pick somebody and go out, you know? And then you, then you think to yourself, well, I'll never do that. I'm going to get up there. I know exactly who I'm voting for. So they go up and they see George Bush on one side, Al Gore on the other side, and punch Pat Buchanan. I guarantee you that's what happened. Design matters. It's excellent to talk to you. Thank you, Paula Cher, uh, who Thanks. is going to be coming to New Zealand shortly uh, for a design symposium.